At the end of our service today, we will all come to the table, the communion table, and we'll share a meal together because the Lord said that we are to remember, we are to come to the table and remember his sacrifice. And we use the cup and the bread in memory of that. And you are invited if you have professed faith in Jesus Christ to share that moment with us at the table. So while we're waiting for the choir to sit down, I'm going to make a couple of announcements. First, I'm going to say good morning. Thank you. Good morning to you too, Allison. <laughs> I'm Pastor Paula Moutsos, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Pathways Baptist Church, and I counted a privilege to serve in that way. Now, one of the things that I want to tell you about is uh, something that Jonathan started to talk about, and that was the installation service that is going to happen on the 19th. And I have a couple of instructions that I'd like to give you in light of that event. Uh, pastor Williams, Ed Williams, will be installed as the second pastor of Pathways Baptist Church on the 19th, and it's going to be a great time in the Lord. Now, last week, I invited everybody to wear and bring a dish from their country. Now, I got a lot of pushback and feedback about that sentence because then I went on to say, well, you know, we have people from all over the world. We have people from Tennessee. We have people from Virginia and the great state country or however they refer to themselves now of Texas and... Um, so I got some pushback on those comments. So I said that I wouldn't say anything like that again this week because I got pushback on it last week. So this week I'm going to simply say that we are having uh, a celebration after church and that we would like people to bring a dish that would be reflective of how you would have a celebration within the context of your family. And if that is somewhere from overseas, if you want to bring some curry, or if you want to bring some Smithfield ham, or some dim sum, or some pate cashew, or whatever that looks like for your family. Now, the house is going to provide fried chicken because that's the country that Eddie is from, Roanoke, Virginia. And we'll have drinks and all, but we would love it for you to come and, uh, and celebrate with us. Now, if you are not a cook, that is absolutely fine. Please come and uh, spend time with us. You don't need to bring food to be admitted. We're Baptists. We will have tons of food. That won't be a problem. But we do want you to come and celebrate that day. There's a couple of other things that I'd like to tell you about that, and then we'll move on into our time of teaching. Outside in the gathering area, you'll find a small desk, and personnel is there, and they have little um, pieces of stationery. In the instruction, what we're asking people to do is to write a note or a prayer or a well wish for Pastor Eddie 
on the piece of stationery. Then we will take it and we will combine them all in a book and give that to him as our prayers and as our wishes for him as he takes the helm as uh, the lead shepherd here. So, does everybody have that? You're going to write a note that's right outside and you're going to bring something delicious on the 19th to share about for 12, 15 people, something like that, and we will all spend time together as a family, as a community that day, and share in that time. Amen? All right, amen. So today, we are going to continue to talk about, uh, we are in the book of Colossians, and we're in the second chapter today, verses 1 through 5. We have been celebrating our... Um, post-Easter season, if you will, which is the celebration of Christ's resurrection, his death and resurrection from the cross. We've been celebrating that, uh, the fact that he is our risen Savior, Lord, and King. And because he has risen, because he is alive, we have certain responsibilities in light of that. So last week I talked about uh, we've been reconciled to him because of his sacrifice. And today I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about another aspect or another part of the good news, which is that we can live in truth now that we know that he is risen and he lives and he is for us. So as I was preparing all of this information today, I've got to tell you, I've got a lot of thoughts running through my mind. And um, so as I'm speaking, I would covet your prayers because I want to be focused and I want to be clear. But I also want to be true to what I think that is happening in this moment. As I look at this passage, this is a letter from a pastor. This is a letter from a pastor who is in prison. And this pastor has never met the people that he's writing to in Colossus. He knows these people through another pastor that he met, but he is instructing and he loves these people in this church and he's writing to them. And I just find that to be so powerful because that's what we are called to do and to be as Christians. Christ, God, calls us his family. He says that we are his children because he's reconciled us back to himself. And so that means that if we are family, we're supposed to love each other. How many people know that that's not always easy to do? Has anybody got a family here? Has anybody met a family? Or I'm sure your families are all okay. 
my family, we can be a bit broke down sometimes. Sometimes we aren't always lovely toward each other. Sometimes we're not always truthful toward each other. We can be a bit harsh. We can be a little bit selfish sometimes. I'm not going to say which one of us, but some of us can be mean, too. <laughs> it is all right. Because we're family. It's a fact. I, I, you know what? Even if I tried to run away, some of y'all would chase me down and say, no, you got to go back. I can't get rid of them even if I wanted to. They're my family. It's too late now. <laughs> And in the same way, those of us who call Jesus the Christ, Lord, Savior, we're family too. And it doesn't matter that some of us are a little mean <laughs> or that some of us uh, are different. We're all bonded together under the blood. So Paul is writing to these people who he loves. He doesn't know them. He doesn't have to know them because they're part of the family. He doesn't have to have met them, I should say. He knows them because they're human and we're all kind of the same. But he loves them and he writes a note. So let's look at this note that Paul wrote. And then we're going to talk about how we're family and how we're to live in light of it. The note starts like this. It says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is, in, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may be may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, this is your word. And your word is good for correction. Your, your word is good for teaching. Your word gives us 
the way we are to live. So in these next few minutes, Father, I ask that you reduce me and show yourself strong, that you bring the words of life, that you bring the words of grace, that you bring the words of healing so that we may all know you and love you and each other a bit more. And we say this in your son, Jesus Christ's name, amen. So as I said, Paul is talking about his ministry here and he's talking to the people of Colossus and he is talking about the people in Laodicea. And if we were to just do a little exegesis, meaning if we were to just do a little um, study of just this paragraph, we would pull out a few things. And I think that these are things that we could find vital for any ministry, but our own in particular. One of the things that we could pull out is that we see, as he writes this letter, that he has a heartfelt love and concern for the spiritual well-being of the church, which, like I said, includes people that he never met. You also see that in this letter, he's talking about prayer, but he discusses it as a great struggle, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But he talks about prayer, which undergirds everything. And then there's a strong emphasis on teaching truth in loving relationships as we look at this, because he says that he wants you to know all of the, the treasures of uh, wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Christ. And he, it also says that uh, Christ is to be centered and exalted in teaching. And he also warns new believers about the danger of being carried away by false teaching and those who would prey on the flock. This is the note that he wrote to the family in Colossus. This is what he wrote so that they could um, be unified around the teachings and the words in the life of Christ. So I started this morning to talk about family. And we don't all have a good example of that because we're human and we are still becoming. We have become, but we are still becoming and we have not uh, reach the fullness of all that we're going to be. So we fall short. And that's okay. But it's so interesting that God calls his church a family, that he uses that analogy, that he's father and that we're children. And it's even more interesting that we are family in the context of a church. So a church is supposed to be a family, so this is the uh, laboratory, if you will, of where we are to learn how to love each other, how to serve each other, how to grow in Christ-likeness. We are supposed to do that with the people that are sitting around in this room. Now, the question is, when you look around this room, you see people from all over the world, 
from all different kinds of backgrounds, and all of us are bringing all different kinds of things to the table. All of us are broken. All of us fall short. All of us have come in here this morning with our stuff, our hurts. Some of us have come here with our disappointments, all kinds of things. And somehow we're supposed to roll all of that up into one big ball and be a family and love each other and walk together. How do you do that? Well, the scriptures are pretty clear. Has anybody ever heard of the one another's? Is that something that is familiar? Okay, Pastor Clark, thank you. He's listening. <laughs> the one another's. They're about, I don't know, a lot. There's at least, I want to think, I want to say it's a hundred one another's in Scripture. And they're all sprinkled, about 95 of them, throughout the New Testament. And the one and others are designed to be instructive to us in terms of how we are to live out this experiment, which we call the church family. So when you look at the one and others, you'll see things like they are to love one another. And you see that a lot. In fact, it's so strong that the Apostle John says even that um, you cannot possibly love God who you have not seen if you cannot love your brothers and sisters who are right here that you can see. We are to love one another. Another of the one another's is that we are to bear with one another. Some translations say that we're to tolerate one another. I've been thinking about that word tolerate. That's a really um, hot word in my house and among all the young people that sit on that back row there. Everything is about tolerance and tolerating. And I started thinking about that last night. Are we really called to tolerate people? What does that even mean, to tolerate? You know, when you tolerate someone, first of all, I want to go on record as saying I don't want to be tolerated. So if that's the best you can do, uh, I don't want to be tolerated. To me, toleration is the lowest common denominator. That means I'm just barely putting up with something. That something might be irritating, that I don't like it, I'm tolerating it. And I think it's kind of funny that, and I want to even go as far as to say, I think Satan has co-opted that word, co-opted that word, and spun it back out in our society that now we are all at the altar of this word tolerance. But brothers and sisters, that's not what we're called to. We're called to love. And love 
is inconvenient. Love is messy. Love means I've got to sacrifice. Love means I've got to do stuff that I don't want to do. It's not enough to just tolerate. That's not what we're called to do. The one another's, probably a better translation would be we are to bear, we are to bore. Just like Christ bore our sins, we are to bear with one another. You don't tolerate. It also says that we're to be devoted to one another. Don't you love it when, when someone that loves you and that you love gives you that, look, I'm devoted to you. We're to be devoted. We're to love. So why am I telling you all this? Well, for a myriad of reasons. One, it's because that's who we're supposed to be as the church. We're supposed to be a loving church. We are supposed to be a part of a loving family. And those are the ways that you show love. If you're a note taker, a loving church is also supposed to be a praying church. We're called to, that's another one another, we're called to pray for one another. Let me ask you a question, and please don't raise your hand. When's the last time you prayed for somebody other than yourself or somebody in your family? Good for you. A loving church prays for each other. They pray for their family. We are the family. Church Big C is the family. We're called to pray. I'm going to tell you a quick story. And they would be embarrassed if I used their names, Becky and Larry White, so I won't do that. (laughs) Becky and Larry White are my friends, and they've been my friends for a long time. In fact, Pastor Larry... You probably have heard me say this before, I mean, because I say it all the time. Pastor Larry was one of my mentors when I was uh, in seminary. He likes to say he was one of my tour mentors, which, and there is some truth to that, but he says it as a joke. And um, his wife, Becky, his partner in life, his partner in crime, his partner, Becky. Two of the best people I know, two of the funniest people I know, two of the most God-fearing people that I know. When I grow up, I want to be like Becky and Larry. Becky and Larry have taught me how to pray over the years. And I don't say this to embarrass them. I say this to invite you to be a part of them in this way. Um, 
four years now. Uh, they joined the church back in the early 2000s, so yeah, mid-2000s. But I can tell you every Sunday, if they are here in Washington, D.C., if they're not traveling on vacation or whatever, you can find them at 8 o'clock in the morning in the church building, first in Wheaton, then in Olney, now in Gaithersburg, because those are all the different alliterations of who we've been and who we continue to be. Hopefully we'll have a location in Milan or someplace like that one day. That'd be great. Okay, that was funny. Okay, fine. All right, whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you will find them at 8 o'clock in the morning in the prayer room praying for you on their face before God for each and every one of you. Praying for your families, praying for the service, praying for you to get out of bed and come. Yeah, we do. We're praying for you to get out of bed and come. And they do it, and they do it faithfully because they understand that you're family. And they understand that family prays and family wants the best. So I say that by way of invitation. I know that there are others who pray. There's another group that every Wednesday night, you'll find them here at 6.30 in the evening. And they pray. And they pray for your hurts, and they pray for your children, and they pray for your surgeries, and they pray for your families who are away from God. And they've done it for years. Because that's what love does. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. The two things that I want you to take away from that is that if you love people, pray for them. Keep them on your heart. It's hard to be mad at people if you're praying for them. Did you know that? If you're praying for somebody, and I'm not talking about those kind of prayers where, Lord, now you know you better tell them to, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is when you go into your prayer closet and say, Father, what have I done to sever this relationship? Father, what can I do to encourage this person? Father, this person doesn't seem to be themselves. Could you show me something that would help me to be able to speak into their situation? Those are the kind of prayers that I'm talking about. What can I do, Father? to be a blessing. Father, how can I stop looking at my own situation long enough to see the hurt and the need in others' situation? Father, I'm going to trust you for my little pile of mess right here because you and I both know my mess here, so I don't have to keep talking about that. But Father, give me the eyes and the grace and the wisdom to see what others are going through. That's what you do when you're in family. That's how you love. Another thing that a, a loving church does is they have a 
heartfelt concern for one another. They're not busy trying to keep up appearances, keeping up with the Joneses, like that song says, we're just happy that they live next door. They come in warts and all and say, okay, this is me, but hey, I'm trying and I need you to be in prayer for me. I'm trying and I'm not even succeeding. That's why I really need you to pray for me. Because that's what family does. Family wants the best. Family has a heart and a real concern for others. A loving church also seeks the highest good for, of, for others. They want the highest good. And in this context, the highest good is that a person knows Christ and that they're growing in Christ and they're learning to love Christ deeper and they're learning how to walk with Christ. Does anybody know that this road is hard? Did somebody tell you that this road was easy because you need to get your money back if somebody told you that this road is easy? There is nothing easy about this road. It is not easy to live counter to our nature. And that's exactly what we're called to do when we are part of a loving church and when we are part of a loving family. To know Christ and to grow in him and to walk with him requires a lot of things. I'll go back to my story with Larry and Becky. Part of being um, in the seminary that I went to, I went to Bethel Seminary. Yay, Bethel. Part of being in seminary at Bethel meant that we always had to be in a small group and that we had to um, have a mentor and that meant we had to be in accountable relationships to people. Now, that is a very un-American thing to be in accountable relationships with people because I'd be grown, I'd be grown for a long time and I don't have to tell you anything about what I do because I'm grown. Well, family, that's not the Christian way. <laughs> being in seminary and being under a mentor and being in a small group, an accountability group, meant that pretty much I had to live with my life wide open for years. I still live in that way because now that I've learned to live in that way, I know that I can't live in any other way because how many people know that Satan wants you to hide and to live in darkness and live in fear and being found out and all of that. So if you just live out in the open, you don't have to worry about being found out and caught and all that kind of stuff. Just saying. Anyway. So I had to learn to live openly and publicly before my mentors, before the people in my seminary, and for the, uh, for the congregation. 
And it's not, it, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to do. Because that means warts, mistakes, and all are out there for everybody to see. And there were a lot of times where it was embarrassing. There were a lot of times where I would get up and, you know, I'm trying to learn how to preach. And, I mean, the congregation suffered through bad sermons. I mean, they're not a lot better now, but they were really bad back then. And I would, like, have to stand at the back door and everybody, we're praying for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And if I made a mistake or if I didn't get a good grade on a test or something, I had to go and tell my mentor. It was almost like a kid having to go and have their parents sign a paper and all. It, I felt like I was a kid. But I've got to tell you, when you live like that, when you live in community, you live in accountability before God and before your church family, that is how you grow. That is how you learn. And God honors that. Because it goes back to what I was saying a minute ago If you're not living in that way, if you're living in a way where you're trying to um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you are trying to, you know, gut it out, or if you are simply doing things that you're ashamed and you hope to God no one ever finds out, um, what I have found is that it takes more energy to live like that than to just step in the light of the truth and let God do his healing work in your heart, using the people around you. Because the thing of it is, here's the big secret, they're broke down too. They're not judging you. They're too busy trying to hide their stuff. But if we're all bringing that and, okay, and let's not even get it twisted. God knows all of this stuff anyway. <laughs> and we think we're hiding. We're like the little kid who has spilled something on the floor, and, and you walk up, well, who did that? I don't know. Well, what's that? Nothing. I don't know. That's what it's like. God knows all this stuff anyway, so why don't we just all live in agreement with, yes, I'm broke down, and I need help, and I need your prayers, and I need your love, not your tolerance, so that I can grow and be the person, the woman, the man of God that I've been called and created to be. Not a sermon, just a thought. So, if we're in a loving church and this church is seeking the highest good of everyone and praying for everyone and practicing heartfelt concern and all of that, all of that is great, but if it's not around the center and person of Jesus Christ, then we're a sorority or fraternity.
Christ must be at the center of what we're doing. So, why? How? It's because this is where life is found. This is where answers are found. This is where eternity is found in this book. So everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we rally around has to be a part of this. It has to come from this and it has to come from having a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. So we have to strive and we will always strive to be a Bible teaching Christ-centered church because really human philosophy, anything that I tell you up here, I mean, I could come up with something probably kind of clever or at least uh, appropriate some clever things from people much smarter than I, but they will not be the words of life. Only Jesus has the words of life. A Christ-centered church is also a spiritually discerning church. What do I mean by spiritually discerning? Discernment is uh, a scarce commodity these days because like I said, we're all living at the altar of tolerance. But if you, an are an advocate, I'll say it this way, if you're an advocate for being discerning, if you think that discernment is a high value and that's something that we as a church need to do, well, get ready, you are going to be called intolerant, you're going to be called judgmental, you may even be called ignorant. But a Christ-centered church is called to be spiritually discerning. So how do you do that? You use the Bible. You know, it's so interesting, the conversations that I have in my house these days. I live with a teenager, and I'm not putting him out there. <laughs> I'm not putting him out there because he's a product of this environment and of this time that he lives in. He's, a, he's not a millennial. What is he, Jonathan? He's an Xer, a Yer, a Zer. He's a Zer. He's a Z, Generation Z. Introducing Generation Z. <laughs> um, and we talk about just the wildest stuff. And, and, it's, and if I say any little teeny thing, I mean, I'm not even trying to be anything other than just say whatever sentence that I'm saying. You can't say that. I'm like, what? I'm standing in my own house. I can say whatever I want. What? You, you just can't say that. That is, I mean, that is for that person. I'm like, I'm not saying nothing about that. I'm just, I, I'm, I, don't, I can't have an opinion. Well, no, not if it's, you know. It, it's so interesting. It's so interesting, the times that we live in. But it, 
as I started this whole thing, we are to live counterculturally. And to live counterculturally means that we have to be discerning. And to be discerning means that, you know, maybe there is a right and a wrong, and maybe we need to be on the side of right. I'm just saying. Don't yell at me, JT. We're called to be discerning. And the reason why we have to be discerning is because in Ephesians 4.14, it says God's people will be carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every trickery of men, by every craftiness in deceitful scheming if we are not discerning and using the word of God. And if you don't believe me, turn on the TV. Another thing that it says about being a Christ-centered church is that we are to grow in wisdom and understanding. Paul was writing this letter. We talked about it last week. He was writing this letter because there were false teachers. There were wolves in sheep's clothing that were in the flock, and they were trying to pull them off course. But he said that all of the wisdom that we need to have. And he calls them treasures, diamonds, pearls. All the wisdom that we need to have is in Christ alone. And the word says that if we seek him, we can find him. He wants to know us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And the last thing that I would say about a Christ-centered church is that a Christ-centered church, and we've heard this before, practices unity on essential biblical truths and loving tolerance on non-essentials. Okay, that was before I woke up and irritated with the word tolerance. Sorry, I didn't wake up until this morning irritated with that word. That's why it's still up there. Colossians says that um, we are supposed to be knit together or held together, that we are to be unified. But being unified does not mean being divorced from the understanding that Jesus Christ lived and died for our sins. In fact, that is how we attain unity, because we believe that. And that's how we maintain unity, because we proclaim that to a lost and hurting world. That's a core biblical truth. That is what we teach here at Pathways. We're not going to deviate from that. But there are other things that we can debate about that we can agree to disagree about. But most of those things are going to be practices and methodologies, not theology. We were in a um, conversation on Facebook, and it was a talking about music, and the author 
wrote uh, that we should worship God at all times and if necessary use music. And the person uh, that I got into a conversation with wanted to talk about that further and wanted to understand that a little better. And I said, well, you know, that comes from uh, a sentence that uh, was attributed to St. Francis to Assisi's, but he never really said it, that you should live the gospel uh, out, basically, and if necessary, use words. What we're doing, what this whole thing is about, is about a change in our lives and in our hearts. It's about Christ being at the center. It's about he being the head of his church and we being in a growing relationship with him. It means reading the Bible and all those things. But on the things that we don't have to um, agree on, on methodologies, let it go. It's okay not to like certain things. It's okay not to like traditional music. It's okay not to like contemporary music. It's okay uh, to like incense and, and robes. It's okay to like jeans and cute outfits. What's not okay is if you're a hindrance to someone else who likes the other thing that you don't like. That's where the one another's come in, the preferring one another the loving one another. I realize everything isn't for everybody, and that's okay. But don't be a hindrance to someone who does like it. Anyway. This is where we find our unity. We find it around this table. If our, if our uh, servers would come. This is where we uh, proclaim to the world that we are disciples. It's within the blood and within the broken body of Christ where we find our unity. We're never going to find it uh, anywhere else. I think it's important to keep the main thing the main thing. As I said before, if you have given your life to Christ and know him as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to
to this table. We want you to be unified with us. We want to take this moment to proclaim his goodness and his grace.